the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Like it or not, the workplace is changing. But does it work for you? The breakneck pace at which technology is impacting the workplace is happening faster and faster than ever before. When years passed, it sometimes took decades before real change came. Now it happens seemingly overnight. For example, offices use the same basic typewriter to communicate from its inception in 1867 up until the 1980s. But the technology that began to replace the typewriter in the 80s bears little resemblance to the communication technology we use today. And as technology rapidly transforms the workplace, many of these changes will create dramatic shifts in the long-term future of work. For instance, reports estimate that between 45 to 55 percent of current jobs could eventually be lost to automation, with 7 percent of that job loss coming as soon as the year 2025. How can one hope to compete in this changing environment, let alone survive? You might not be getting that gold watch for working with the same company for 30 years like your grandfather did, but there are things you can learn that will not only help you survive in today's workplace, but thrive. We're joined in studio by career coach Dr. David Petrove. Dr. Petrove has been in the field of education for more than 35 years and did his doctrinal graduate study at the University of Arizona. He does lectures and seminars across the country and operates his own consulting firm, David Petrove Coaching. Dr. David, welcome. Thank you, Craig. So as we continue our discussion, I think for a lot of us, our initial exposure to the working world is typically through our parents. Maybe, Dad, you took you to work one day and you got a chance to see the plant or the factory or where he works, or maybe you got excited hearing stories that Mom would share when she came home after her busy day at the office or at work. And so this is sort of our initial exposure to what work looks like. And I guess to that degree, there is some sense of influence, whether eventually, Dr. Petrove, where people end up following in their parents' footsteps or maybe even say, I don't ever want to work a job like Dad did. Exactly. Looking at my own background, my father was a mail carrier. And so I would go to the post office after school and observe the postal workers. And they would be standing at their little cubby holes sorting mail according to addresses. This was pre-technology where there were self-sorters. Is this something that I could do? Well, with my father, what worked for him was dedication and routine. But I decided that that would not work for me. I was a person who needed variety, continuous learning. I needed to be in leadership roles. What I saw happening at the post office was individuals who were probably performing the same job duties day one as they were doing today. So not a lot of room for growth. Do some of those choices end up becoming personality-related, too? And I ask that question because some might look at a job like that and say, well, it doesn't offer a lot of stimulation, but it does provide a nice degree of stability. And you had to look at the time in which this occurred. It would have been during the 50s where people were 
coming back from the war, and they were looking for established positions. Government positions like working in the post office were about security. You knew that you were going to have a job from the time you began until the time you retired, and that's exactly what my father did. So I looked at that, and I thought, security is important. It's not always guaranteed. With my mother, she was what we referred to as a housewife, and she stayed home and raised four children. Well, again, I learned dedication and routine and hard work. They were both very hardworking people. And I looked at this and I thought, I needed more in life. Now, in those days, women rarely worked outside the home. And their whole focus was on raising children. And with the money that people made back then, they could afford a decent home, a car, all of the things that we think about with, you know, the house with the white picket fence and the 2.5 children and a dog and Life was wonderful. Realizing the American dream. It was the American dream back then. Absolutely. This is important for individuals to look at. What did my parents do? What did I learn from that? What do I carry into my adult work life? And what's different for me? This is probably a good indicator of where I see myself headed in life. Is it important also to use this sort of family history as an indicator of the kind of attitudes that we bring in toward work? And I I pose that question because there might be a case where dad really loved what he did. He came home at the end of the day with a tremendous sense of satisfaction. And so work for him was a good experience. Contrasting that against someone who maybe worked a job that was hard, tiring, very stressful, was a job that perhaps dad absolutely hated but had to do out of necessity, and so at the end of the day, brought home a picture of work that tended to be very dark, very unappealing. So I'm wondering what kind of a influencer these sorts of childhood images may have upon us when we begin to think about not just the type of career that we choose, but attitudes towards work overall. Well, that's a very big part of it, Craig, in terms of what type of satisfaction do people experience from what they do. With my father, he would come home and appear to be satisfied with the work that he did. The same thing with my mother. She seemed to be somewhat satisfied with what she did. When I learned more about their whole attitude toward this was in my late adult years, I asked them about the choices that they had made. And what I received in terms of responses was very different from what they presented growing up. They had, each of them, very different aspirations when they were in school as to what their lives would be like. They were both highly intelligent and yet at the same time seemed to be restricted by the way the world was back then. Even though my father would have qualified for something like the GI Bill, He did not go to school after that. His idea was you go to work, you start raising a family, and perhaps, and hopefully, your children will go on to school, which is exactly what happened. And sometimes, I would suppose, toward that degree, we see a paradigm shift that's occurred from that generation, largely that came back after the war and said, okay, it's about building family, putting the war behind us, getting a job, earning a living, and so you derive satisfaction out of realizing the American dream. Today, we seem to have more emphasis on 
career choice satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment that, yes, it's important to earn enough money to realize your own personal American dream, but along the way, you'd like to be able to stand back and feel as if you've made right choices that ultimately have given you a sense of personal satisfaction as well or achievement in what you've done in your career choices. And that's a big part of it. I think that if you look at the story that I told about my parents, they were part of what we call the traditionalist generation who had a very specific set of values and approaches to work. It's important if, as a listener that you identify where your parents are in terms of those generations, what messages they received as they grew up in terms of the work that they did and how that was transferred to you and the choices that you subsequently made based upon that. I'm struck by your observation that toward the end of both of their lives, there was a sense of perhaps missed opportunity. And hindsight being 2020 is a wonderful thing. So then that leads to the important question. Anybody eavesdropping on this conversation that says, well, gee, I don't want to wind up like that, or I'm looking back on my life and all of the choices that I made and determining that, you know, when I had a chance to do something different, I didn't take that path. I didn't head down that road. So as I'm making choices in the here and now and looking not back at the past, but looking forward toward the future, how do I determine if I'm making the right choice? How do I somehow with a sense of anticipation make decisions today where when I reflect back on my life, I can say, yes, I did make the right choice. That's a lot of what career choices are about. It's the hindsight. As I work with all of the the clients in my profession, what I learned is that there's really no right or wrong choice that you make because basically a career path is one that allows you to experience and explore life. And you can do that in so many ways. I was just working with a client who wanted to ensure as someone in his 20s that the next step that he was taking was going to be absolutely the right one. As we said in the very first program, there are so many factors and variables that affect the work and where you do it. And I guess the other big difference, too, is back years ago, several generations ago, you made a career choice and you stuck with it for your entire working life. Today, we see more and more people that can reach a juncture and then choose a different path, head down a different road. And sometimes you can do that multiple times over the course of your working career, which might wind up looking like 40, 50 years of your life. So in some respects, there are more opportunities today, not only across gender lines, but also in terms of the opportunity to change career directions midstream. Absolutely. And I think that this is something that's very important for anyone who's a listener to consider. Ask yourself if you're growing as a person in the position that you hold. If there's absolutely no growth, if this is what you want in life, absolutely go for it. There are positions out there like this. If you're a person who says, I'm all about growth, I'm all about paying attention to what's happening in the world around me and responding to that, then you will be changing many, many times. Our conversation about career path choices continues with Dr. David Petrove right after this.
You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. I want to pick up, Dr. Petrove, where we left off, and that was this notion that oftentimes folks have the opportunity in this day and age to select multiple career paths. You might begin in career path A and then 10 years later decide you're tired of that, you want to try something different. But it then begs the question, at what junctures you go along through your initial career path, or maybe you're in career change number two, how do you address the question, I think I've made the wrong choice here. Remember, there'll only be one career that each person has. Within that career, they will hold multiple positions that we call jobs, various occupations. Maybe they will change fields, but it'll still be part of that one path that they're following. If you come to a dead end and you say, you know what, I think I've made a serious vocational error here. You look at that and you say to yourself, What is it that I would really want to do right now based upon the experience that I've had? And it's the old adage of experience is the best teacher. And I think that there are some things that need to be considered along the way. If a job doesn't feel right, take a look at some characteristics. One of them being, are you a person who's more inclined to work with people, data, things, or ideas? And there are sites out there where you can actually enter that in and it will identify types of jobs that you might be better matched for. In your current job, how would you delineate the percent of time spent with people, with data, with things, ideas? So we have a number there. Now, ideally, where do you see yourself in terms of percentages? And they can do a matchup I'm a person who would like to have 60 to 70% of my time working with people. In my current job, I do that about 20%. We look at their level of satisfaction. If the numbers are significantly off, chances are it's not a good match for them anymore. So the extrovert who is in a career choice of working in computers and spends the day in front of a computer screen, very little human interaction, and yet they're an extrovert, they may walk away with a tremendous lack of satisfaction from that job because that extrovert in them is not getting fed. And that is a definite possibility for people. And then a person with that aspect of their personality would have to ask themselves, so where do I get to practice that extroverted part of me? It might be that a lot of it occurs outside the workplace or they have an opportunity to step outside of the cubicle that they work in and interact with other people. So again, it's seeking opportunities to express that part of who you are. And again, the more discrepancy there is between those percentages, the more important it is to take a look at the satisfaction attached to it. And maybe there's something out there 
where you can use your experience and your interests and apply those in doing something that you just can't wait to get to work in the morning. Another area is your preferred working conditions. It's important for people to recognize that there are certain environments that are more nurturing for them. I am not a cubicle person. I'm a person who needs the opportunity to get up, walk around, and make sure that part of that walking around includes being outdoors with nature. So you look at whether you're an indoor or an outdoor person. Are you a person who functions better in the morning? There are people who would love to start work at 6 a.m. I'm not one of those people. Me either. (laughs) Okay. My ideal time to begin work is about 10 o'clock and then working through 9 o'clock at night. I, that's my prime time. Any time outside of that, I notice that my energy level, my attention level, is seriously challenged. Again, looking at where you function best, there are night owls that they don't even want to get to work until 11 o'clock at night. That's their body clock. So you look at that as a preference. Are you a person who prefers to work alone? Or do you prefer to work with large groups of people? Or do you like a mix of that? Some time to work alone to think about the jobs that you're assigned and some time to interact with others, maybe doing brainstorming, working on a project together. You look at things like, where would I want to live in the country? Would I want to live in a place where I experienced all four seasons? Or would I want to work in an environment like Hawaii, where it's warm all year round and I'm exposed to tropical breezes and an opportunity to get to the ocean in just a few minutes. So there are all of these different facets that you can take a look at. Also, working conditions in terms of what you're paid. Now, what is it that becomes a living wage for you? And we had talked about that in the last program, the challenges with living in specific parts of the country what that means in terms of your lifestyle. And it's important for individuals to calculate what their basic financial needs are and then begin to look for opportunities that match that. Does that calculation also include sort of bigger picture? Clearly, meeting all of the essentials, putting a roof over your head, food on the table, money set aside for a child's education, for retirement is all important. The same token, if you're somebody that, from a hobby standpoint, is content with doing a little bit of work out in the backyard, you probably don't need a lot of disposable income. If, however, you're somebody that says, I love working on antique cars, and I love to go out and acquire a 1930-something other and strip it down and rebuild it, and there's expenses related to locating parts, all that goes into a hobby like that that can be extremely expensive, then your income level would require a higher degree of disposable income. Absolutely. I have a friend who is into antique cars, and the amount of money that is spent on that is unbelievable. But for him, that's a passion. That's not the work that he does as his full-time job. It's a hobby. Again, you have to take a look at what your interests are not only as they apply to the work you do, but as they apply to your recreational lifestyle. In addition to working conditions, we also find it an opportunity to use what we call transferable skills. These are the skills that are non 
job site specific communication skills, if you're good at expressing your ideas, that's a transferable skill because it transfers across settings. The ability to problem solve, that would be a transferable skill. Thinking about what it is that you're good at, natural talents, and how those can be applied to the work that you do. If you know what your life purpose is, how is that coinciding with the work that you do? Applying your knowledge and areas of interest. What is it that you find to be interesting where it's something you read about, you continue to learn about? How is that being applied to the work that you do? How does that match the area of interest that you have? And I always say to people, if you're not sure what you're interested in, go to a bookstore that has a magazine rack that displays all different types of areas. Which ones do you gravitate toward? Are you more toward entertainment? Are you car repair? Are you health and well-being? Look at which ones attract your attention. That will definitely explain what it is that you enjoy doing. Same thing as what kinds of magazines do you read at home? What do you enjoy watching on television and why? There's a reason for all of that. Now, in some cases, people may say, well, I just watch television in order to disengage my brain. Well, that says that you need a certain amount of relaxation in your life in order to maintain a balance. So everything is good in terms of what it provides in terms of information. It's learning how to pay attention to it. Then looking at what motivates you. Are you motivated by having a high income that allows you to work on antique cars? Are you motivated by an interest in helping others? Are you motivated by being acknowledged for your achievements? There are a number of areas that provide motivation, and oftentimes it's more than one area that motivates you. We'll continue our discussion as we talk about career path choices in one's life. When we come back, looking at the myriad of selections you have today, much more than just factory or farm. Our conversation with Dr. David Petrove continues. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. We're continuing our series looking about what it means to work in the 21st century. 
Historically, for many years, certainly, and for a good portion of the last century, Dr. Petrovay, many people had two basic fundamental choices. You either worked factory or farm. Now, what kind of farming you did or the type of factory that you worked in certainly could vary. But at the end of the day, those were kind of the two basic choices. And in many cases, you derived a paycheck from somebody else. Today, though, we find far more choices that even the subgroups find themselves with subsets. Right. I typically will do presentations on what I consider five different roads that your career might take. And that first road is a traditional role. And a traditional work approach is one that consists of a limited number of long-term positions. And generally, you're working for the same company, and it provides benefits such as health insurance, paid vacations. If you're considering this, and by the way, the description of the five that I'm going to give is not about saying to someone, I would prefer this one over this one. They're just options that you have. So if you were to take a traditional approach to work, the advantages would be that it can provide for stability and financial security for as long as the company survives. You do have eligibility for health plans and insurance and retirement. The roles are also distributed across the company so that you are not expected to be a jack of all trades. Sometimes offering pensions, and we know now that those are disappearing. It's about 401ks and what you're doing to create your own pension plan. It's also the fact that many of the jobs within the traditional field don't require specialized skills. And you can also get ongoing training, which is on the job as part of this that might lead to a progression in the positions. And it does provide for lateral advancement that allows you to broaden your existing skills, develop new talents, and maybe prepare for a future vertical move. So what are the disadvantages? Well, upward mobility can be limited. I tend to liken it to a pyramid. We have a lot of jobs at that lower level and only one CEO at the top. And how many people that start at that lower level are going to actually achieve that CEO position or would even want to? Oftentimes, what I'll hear from clients is their concerns about managers and the fact that they lack skills and personality to effectively supervise. Maybe the idea that employer loyalty is no longer in place. You work for yourself. No matter where you work, you are your name incorporated. Big businesses will employ the majority of those in traditional career paths, but they're likely to downsize or to offshore, as we've seen recently happen. And basically, your pay can be dictated by an established pay structure. Another road is being a contractor. We're hearing a lot more about contracting positions. And basically, this consists of self-employed individuals who are given a specific job to do during a set of amount of time. So the advantages with this would be you have a freedom to choose choose the jobs that you want. Work schedule can be flexible. You get to be your own boss. It allows you to experience a variety of work environments as you move from project to project. For a number of people, it can be a move from part-time to full-time. And you can spend more time on the actual time worked since you're not having to attend meetings and company-related events. You can barter with other contractors. And as business grows, you have free time possible to employ others under you as a contractor. So what's the disadvantage? Well, if job security is important for you, this is not a place to go. Your income can fluctuate greatly when you have a contracting position. 
it can require significant travel. You need to train yourself constantly and stay abreast of current trends. The important thing here is that being a contractor does not provide the same rights as those granted employees under the Fair Labor and Standards Act. You may have to pay quarterly taxes. You're not likely to be covered by safety and discrimination laws. And it can be very hard to get established. The business can be ruined based on a bad reputation from the feedback received about your performance there. So again, if you're a person who looks at both the advantages and disadvantages and says, I can work with this, this may be something for you to consider. Next, we have what we call the portfolio career. And a lot of people are considering this. A group of part-time jobs that you hold, they can be part-time, they can be temporary jobs, they can be freelancing, and they can be self-employment. They don't have traditional benefits to them. Why would I want to consider something like this? Well, it offers flexibility, variety, and freedom. You feel like you have more active control of the work that you do because you're performing a variety of small jobs. And it doesn't require the same skills for each of the jobs. You may be doing some very, very different types of work. So something that might have been part of a hobby, wow, I can parlay this into an actual part-time job that generates income. You have more energy. You have an opportunity to go into cross-disciplines. And you get to pursue passions in a variety of directions. So the guy that spends a good part of the day working as a certified public accountant and works the books and manages money, perhaps, or or certainly handles the finances for a variety of clients, but who also likes to cook, might find himself with a part-time job working as a sous chef for a restaurant. That's right. Or even having his own catering business on the side. Looking at the disadvantage of something like this, it could be difficult to identify the types of jobs that you want to pursue. Also, it might be difficult to find employers who are willing to take you on on a part-time basis versus full-time. It requires balancing competing demands for time. I mean, there's only 24 hours in a day. You can't do more than that and stay healthy. You can't say, well, I'm going to work two or three jobs and get three hours of sleep a night. Eventually, you'll pay the price for that. It may involve a loss of benefits and maybe even a drop in earnings. You're not having a regular routine and structure, and for some people, more the traditionalists, that's important in their life. There are also situations in which you may feel isolated because you are moving from one job setting to another and really not establishing roots there. For people for whom that's important, this would be something to consider. It's also what we call challenging or nomadic. You're constantly moving to where new opportunities present themselves. And you can have a life that's out of balance if you're not careful in how you manage the time that you have. Another option for you would be entrepreneurship. And this consists of setting up and running your own business. And that includes starting at the ground level, buying an existing business, or buying the rights to a franchise. So what's the advantage? Well, you get to manage your own business and be your own boss. You eliminate the likelihood that you're going to be terminated from your position. You're not subject to inequities resulting from favoritism, questionable work performance evaluations, and promotional practices. And you can develop a company that matches your own personal vision and mission. You can develop your own clientele. And you can work with people you like based on the chemistry. So what's the disadvantage? Well, if you start from scratch, it can take years for your own business to become established. 
It requires that you have patience with yourself in the acquisition process, and we know that you can become a statistic in which 80% of businesses fail within the first two years. Basically, that's because of two things, lack of knowledge of the business itself and not having the appropriate amount of capital to invest. Because oftentimes people say, oh, I didn't realize it was going to cost this much out of pocket. You need to have a substantial amount set aside if you're going to set up your own business, especially if it's one that involves a franchise. So you're going to be focusing on sales and marketing. It's not done for you. And the upper level positions in traditional career paths may earn higher wages than you would if you were working in your own company. And it requires that you take on a variety of roles within the business for which you may not be suited. So part of what I've learned in taking on my own business, not only do I provide career coaching, but I'm my own bookkeeper. I'm my own marketing. And if I fall down on these, it will affect my business. Finally, there is consulting. And this consists of providing advice to an individual organization based on your knowledge, experience, and interests. Now, the advantage here is that it can work for many seasoned experts who can use their years of experience within a company to apply to the consulting position that they hold. You can work from home in order to reduce business expenses. It works well if you enjoy networking in order to promote your business, and it can be less expensive than pursuing the entrepreneur path. It's pretty easy entry. You're going to have a lot of variety in the people that you meet, and there's going to be flexibility. So what's the disadvantage? Well, there may be specific certifications or licenses needed to run your business. It may take a while to establish and grow your business. It will also require a strong marketing and advertising plan to sell your services. And you can be under a lot of pressure and stress in order to meet your financial obligations if you're not always insured a steady income. You may have to drive or fly to the sites, and there may be less stimulation than if you were in one of the other four settings. So these are all the considerations that needed to be looked at. Now, of course, the next big question that this begs is, how do you, of all these choices, know which one to pursue? We'll get to that answer as our conversation with Dr. David Petrove continues. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. We've been talking about some of the different career paths that people can take, and certainly as you've delineated throughout our conversations in this series, Dr. Petrove, this can change in different seasons of life. And so I suppose for a lot of people, it comes down to the question then, between traditional entrepreneurship, consulting, contract work, or portfolio work, how do I know when in my life to pursue 
each of those? And do some lend themselves at different seasons more so than others? Well, I think that what you want to do, Craig, is you want to absolutely look at where you are in your work life. If you're just beginning, obviously consulting won't be at the top of your list because this is based upon experience and skill development. So that's something that you may consider, oh, maybe starting in your 40s doing consulting work if you have enough of that experience under your belt where you can contribute something to a company. If you're just beginning, it would be more likely that you would pursue something that would be along the traditional lines where something's already established, you step in and you grow within that company. Entrepreneurship is one where there are individuals who have those sales skills, those marketing skills, that drive, and they say, that's the way I want to start out. And for them, if they've done their research on the markets and where they're headed, they can be better informed in terms of the choices that they make. Consulting, again, this is something that would most likely be considered later on in life. And for the more seasoned workers, it's something to definitely look into. Contract work, this, again, will cross along across generations because you can do contract work as a 20-year-old, okay, based upon your skill sets. You can do contract work as a 40-year-old, as a 60-year-old, and they're short-term. Many of them are determined by the standards of the company for which you work. In some cases, you can only work a contract position for six months, and then you move on or they make a decision to hire you permanently. Uh, portfolio is one, I think, that, again, can cross the generations. You can decide, you know, I'm good at this and I'm good at something very different. I think I want to combine these and do maybe two part-time jobs. And with that, if you're younger, you have the opportunity to see which one you might want to develop into something that would be more full-time for you or you might want to put more of your energy making sure that you continue to maintain the skills in the other area so that as times change, you can redirect your energies to the other line of work that you do. So when we look at the big picture here, and certainly as we've delineated, there have been seasons in the face of work over not just the centuries, but certainly even within a decade. When we talk about the future of work, what exactly does that picture look like? We said in the very first program, it would be wonderful if there was a crystal ball that we could look at, but so many things can affect where work is headed. For instance, with startups, one prediction is that they'll be on the decline because there may be an unfavorable climate conditions for new market entrants. So be sure to learn as much as you can about the industry and future of the company before you sign on the dotted line in terms of a startup. There's going to be more opportunity to work remotely more and more people are working from home. There's going to be a need to recognize employees as human beings, and I think this is going to cause employers to focus more on engagement as a way to promote loyalty, effectiveness, and productivity. Interestingly enough, by 2020, contract work is going to account for about 43% of workforce opportunities, and this translates as fewer full-time positions are creating more of what we call a gig economy. There may be an emphasis on niche marketing of your skills, focusing on your uniqueness to perform specific work tasks. So individuals will need to be innovative. And I think that is one area for everyone to think about. What 
do I do that creates opportunities for which there's no competition, that I'm the one and only for this job? Write your own job description. So I think that we're going to be looking at an increased awareness of the cultures around us and the diversity as a means of learning to treat others with respect. You're going to be expected to keep up with technology, and companies are going to are going to focus on health and wellness as a means to reduce health care costs and increase attendance during the day. One of the new phrases, Dr. Petrovay, that we hear quite often, particularly in Silicon Valley, is the gig economy. What exactly does that do? What does it look like? The gig economy has been around for centuries. It just didn't have that name. The gig economy is just a single project or task for which a person is hired. Today, it's often through the digital marketplace to work on demand. So where did this idea or concept come from? It came from the Middle Ages when there would be, let's say, a cathedral being built. So you would wander from one site to another. Oh, they're building a cathedral here. I'm a stonemason. Do you need a stonemason? Absolutely. We're at that point where in the building process, we will need a number of people to fill this role. You come in, you do the stonemason work, when you're done, you leave, and you move on to the next town where your talents are used. So this is a gig economy. So they're more of short-term work assignments as opposed to the traditional approach to, approach to work. Now, LinkedIn predicts that by 2020, 43% of the workforce will be made up of workers who freelance. One motivator for freelancing is the decline of the U.S. pension plan. It's dropped from 60% of companies doing this in 1982 to only 14% of companies doing this today. So when people come in and they say, well, I want to work for a company that provides retirement benefits, realize that that is a shrinking number of companies, that you're more or less going to be responsible for putting together your own retirement plan. Of 6,247 gig economy workers that were surveyed by Intuit, 81% said that they would continue to do this type of work. So it is satisfying for them. So who are these gig economy companies? Well, we know Uber, Lyft, Etsy, Airbnb. More and more of these companies are developing. So what's the drawback to doing this type of work? Well, remember when we were talking about contractors, you lack the basic protections of U.S. law since you are considered to be an independent contractor. So companies may need to treat workers employees to, as employees to avoid losing money. And the other side of it is that many gig economy workers earn less than 30000 a year. So that's not a lot of money. And I suppose a lot of that has to do with the on-again, off-again nature of the work, feast or famine. Right. And the idea of the number of people who become your competition It's interesting, Uber now has 700,000 active drivers, which is nearly three times the number of U.S. taxi drivers and chauffeurs as there were in 2014. Wow. And that's across the world. So I think what's important is if you're going to pursue something like this, you need to have a backup plan to cover your living expenses. But it does allow for flexibility and adaptability. Again, the gig economy is one that we're just beginning to experience now, and it may move into senior-level executive positions in areas such as finance, accounting, and IT. And there may be uh, the growth of what we call networked professional service firms 
that are made up of individual consultants and con- contractors possessing highly specialized skills. So you might find yourself a good candidate for this type of work. Of course, you'll be charging commensurate with that. We're going to pause at this juncture. When we come back, much of this, of course, lends itself to the notion that we need to be able to continue to learn as circumstances and opportunities around us change. We'll drill down into that equation as our conversation with Dr. David Petrove continues. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. With so many different opportunities that are out there and the changing seasons of life that can lead us from one type of job or gig economy position to another, suggests, too, that we need to continue to be flexible. We need to be able to meet the demands of the changing work environment and employment environment around us. Dedicating ourselves to lifelong learning really has gone from what was an option maybe just a few generations ago to almost a necessity to survive today. Yes, Today's world is very different, and if you think your education ended the day you were handed your diploma, you're in for a rude awakening. How do you determine what it is that you should pursue in terms of lifelong learning? Well, there are a number of questions that you can ask yourself. For instance, what subjects interest you? When was the last time you engaged in a discussion about one of these subjects, and what did you learn in doing so? Do you prefer learning new ideas alone or with others in a class? So would you be interested in taking a class in an area of interest, either online or at a brick-and-mortar school? Where do you typically learn new information and skills? Is it from watching television, reading books, having conversations, going to lectures? It's what works for you. Another question is, when was the last time you taught someone what you knew or could do? Oftentimes, this is a great way of strengthening your learning by having to teach it to others. And that's a big part of adult learning. How do you feel when you see a person using that information or skill in that life? Does it give you a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment? And contrary to what we were taught growing up, and believe me, this is something that I remember well from grade school science, the brain does not cease to process new information as we age. The more active we keep our brain through learning, the healthier it will be. And there is new brain research that talks about just that. So keep the brain engaged in a variety of activities. How do I know that what I learned today is going to even hold up to what's needed tomorrow? We know the longer you plan to work, the more important it will be to keep your knowledge base and your skill sets current. Even 10 years from now will be very, very different from the way it is today. 
It used to be that people would have 10-year plans, and I think that's part of what retirement was, was living out that plan for 30 or 40 years. I say to clients, you probably can't go much beyond five years. Now we're looking at three-month, six-month plans with the idea that so much can change in that time, including yourself, that you want to be taking that into account as you make these decisions about what it is that you need to be learning. Now, when you speak to this notion of developing and building upon your skill set, what exactly do those skill sets look like? And can there be a combination of short-term and long-term skills? Yes. So when we look at skills, we tend to look at the difference between what we call hard skills and soft skills. Hard skills are more a set of behaviors that cross company boundaries, and they can include programming, bilingual ability, word processing, chemical analysis. And these are specific tasks that are required to perform your job duties. They're typically learned in school and from books. Your soft skills are a set of behaviors that vary across company boundaries. And they're based on needs in the culture. So these would be communication, cooperation, collaboration, time management, flexibility, what we referred to as transferable skills earlier. So it more often varies based on the situation, and it's going to look different from person to person. And this is developed through life experience. And we know that there are some types of occupations that are more heavily loaded in one set of skills over the other. What are the skills I should focus on developing today? What we're finding is many studies are showing an emphasis on the importance of soft skills. Hard skills can easily be taught. And oftentimes, when you look at a job description, We can teach you the hard skills probably within the first three months because once you learn them, they're set. Again, soft skills are something that are important. They're less about something that you're taught and what you come into the world doing. And some people are better listeners than others. Some people are better at figuring out how to put together an engine. They just have that analytical ability. That's a soft skill. And where you do it, is based upon where you decide you want to go in life. So interestingly enough, two indicators of successful people are good listening skills and empathy. So it's important for you to check in with yourself and ask, where do I stand with those? What does it mean when I interact with others and I demonstrate that I have good listening skills or that I'm able to empathize? So let's say you're a manager and you've got an employee who's dealing with five different projects, and they're all due within the next two weeks. And there are only so many hours in the day that they can devote to this. Someone with the soft skill of empathy would be able to tune into that and have an understanding of what this person is going through in order to meet those goals. And then anything that you can do to help along the way. Sometimes people aren't as good as asking for help as they are with you observing that they're having challenges and volunteering to take some action that will make their life easier. So clearly you're suggesting that there are certain skills that perhaps um, we've learned based on nurturing and early life experiences versus those where we actually attend a formal class and get trained for. So how do I know then if I need to go to an institution of higher learning to gain some of those skills? Well, I think one of the things that's important to ask is whether or not this education or training is going to add to what you can contribute to society and how it's going to support your lifestyle. What we're finding is that the number of people who are going into institutions of higher learning 
and the cost that is incurred when you do that. So you want to ask yourself, is what I want to do contingent upon having a degree? Or are there workarounds? I mean, you take a look at someone like Bill Gates, who did not graduate from college. He seems to be doing quite well in life. He had a specific set of skills that he could apply that made him highly successful. So you want to take a look at what is it that I need to learn to do what I want to do. Obviously, if you want to be a physician, you're going to need to go to medical school. There's no workaround on something like that. So in relationship to some of these different choices that we make or the different seasons within our overall career, I suppose we also need to ask ourselves the question, what kind of understanding, what kind of not just base knowledge or skills, but the kind of lessons that I've learned that can be applicable moving forward? And I think here it's know yourself. This is really about taking stock, taking inventory along the way. Who am I? What do I do? best in life. And in doing that, how much satisfaction is derived from it? If you wake up in the morning and you can't wait to get started doing what you love, chances are you're in the right line of work. And you want to choose the type of work that reflects all of that. And I guess that would also lead to the idea of not only taking inventory of all the skills that you have and the things that you enjoy, the understanding and knowledge given a particular career path that you possess, But I suppose, too, the ability to take that inventory of the mistakes that you've made, or perhaps better put, the regrets that you have at a particular junction in your career path. And I think that that's important as part of that inventory, Craig, is that you look back at what you've done in life and ask yourself, what would I have done differently knowing what I know today? It's easy for us to perhaps make a mistake and then repeat that mistake and have it continue to haunt us. So then that begs the final question in our discussion today. How do you short-circuit that from becoming a bad habit? How do you prevent yourself, once taking inventory of some of your regrets, to make sure you don't repeat those mistakes again later on in life? First of all, knowing what they are, and then using the people around you to act as a sounding board for what those might be. There's nothing wrong with saying to people that you trust, this is an area that I'm working on, and it would be really helpful to receive feedback from you on what you see me doing. It's what we call our blind side, that oftentimes we're not even aware that we're doing it because it's done at almost an unconscious or subconscious level. And it's not until someone says, are are you aware of what just happened? And once you bring it to their attention, you can act on it and say, oh, thank you for reminding me. Or I'm about to do such and such. Would you be a pair of objective eyes and give me feedback as to whether or not I was successful in either changing a habit or, no, I'm still doing it, maybe not quite as badly, but it's still there. So it isn't necessarily having regrets over mistakes that have been made, per se, and allowing that to cripple you. It's making sure that you don't put yourself into a position where that blind side prevents you from seeing those shortcomings, those mistakes that can later on continue to negatively impact you. You know, they've said that the greatest way towards success is a stack of mistakes and errors in the past. I think Thomas Edison, for example, who worked on hundreds, maybe thousands of attempts 
at perfecting the electric light bulb until he finally got it there. Now, do you say each was a mistake leading up to that? No, it was all a part of the big process. But if the lessons learned by previous mistakes were never carried forward, that blindsidedness might have resulted in us sitting here in the dark today. That's right. Thank goodness for the fact that Thomas Edison persevered with this. And each of those attempts was one step closer to success. And I think that's what we need to look at for ourselves. This series, of course, designed to take you one step closer towards success. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrovay. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrovay, please visit his website at davidpetrovaycoaching.com. That's davidpetrovaycoaching.com or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. No portion of this program may be transmitted by third parties in whole or in part without the express written consent of David W. Petrovay, DBA, David Petrovay Coaching. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.